Good morning, everyone. This is Pastor Ron, and welcome to our first sermon here during COVID-19. And uh, obviously, it's a bit strange to be preaching to an empty room. Uh, but, of course, I know you're all with me in spirit here this morning, and, of course, the Lord is with us as well. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18 this morning. And while you're while you're turning there, I want to share with you a little story that I think is applicable here for our message this morning. In 1986, there was a Texas gem dealer named Roy Wetstein, and he was pawing through a Tupperware bowl of cheaply priced rocks at a mineral show in Arizona when he came across a lavender gray kind of potato-sized stone that looked a bit special. And so Wetstein asked the amateur collector, you want $15 for this? Tell you what, replied the collector, I'll let you have it for 10 It's just not as pretty as the others. So Wetstein walked away with the world's largest star sapphire, later valued at $2.3 million. He actually planned to sell his 1905-carat bargain in its uncut form for $1.5 million and put the profits in a trust for his two sons, each of whom had given their dad $5 to bring back a little something from the gem show. Now, if you don't know the value of what you already possess, you too might let it go for something worth far less. And that's exactly what Esau did with his birthright, as we looked at last time in Hebrews chapter 12. He didn't appreciate the value of his birthright, which entitled him to the blessings of God's promises through Abraham. And because he didn't appreciate the value of his birthright, he traded it all away for a bowl of stew. He gave away eternal blessings for instant gratification. And in a very similar sense, that's what these professing Christians are in danger of doing as well. Heavily persecuted, afraid, not able to attend the synagogue, not able to trade in the marketplace. They were scorned, they were mocked, they were ridiculed and even imprisoned for their profession of faith. Many have held fast to their profession, but some are now tempted to walk away from Christianity and return to Judaism. And so the author here is going to contrast the terrors of Mount Sinai, found in verses 18 to 21, which was representing the Jewish life under the law, with the glories of Mount, uh, Mount Zion, which we find in verses 22 to 24, picturing the joy of life under the new covenant. One is a mountain of law, the other is a mountain of grace. The first leaves us terrified and trembling. The second leaves us falling to our knees in amazement and wonder. And what took place at these two mountains serves as a summary statement of the way law and grace operate in our lives every day. But they show us so much more. Now, since we've been away from the text the last two weeks, I want to remind you of the big picture as we approach these final verses in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. The theme of the author of Hebrews' argument has been very straightforward from the very beginning and throughout the entire book, especially in the first 10 chapters. The author has been at great pains to stress that Jesus is better. Matter of fact, I would tell you that that's the theme 
of the book of Hebrews, as you've heard many times. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than the priest. He's better than Aaron. He's better than the entire Levitical system. He's a better high priest. He offers a better sacrifice in a better temple, and he ushers in a new and better covenant with God's people. And the entire system under the law was but a mere shadow of the things that they actually have in Christ. If their profession of faith was real, and that's why they need to trust in Christ and trust Christ alone for their salvation. So that was the theme. That's theme number one in the book of Hebrews that we've seen so far. Jesus is better. The second theme we saw was the importance of persevering in our faith. We are not to make just a profession of faith, but have a true confession of our faith. We're not to drift away or not fail to enter his rest, but instead we are told to hold fast and not forsake assembling together by our own selfish choices. And so then beginning in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and forward, the author of Hebrews stresses to Christians that we should persevere in believing in Jesus. And after that exhortation to persevere in chapter 10, we move to chapter 11. And there we saw real-life examples of men and women who lived their entire life by faith. They lived their entire lives trusting in God and waiting for him to fulfill his promises. But here's the thing. They never actually saw these promises being fulfilled. Specifically, they never saw the promised Messiah arrive to deliver them. And even still, they lived their lives to the very end, knowing that God would fulfill these promises, even if they would never see them fulfilled in their lifetimes. Now then, Hebrews chapter 12 picks up where Hebrews chapter 11 ends and draws some wonderful theological truths for us. The first is, is that we as believers are expected to grow in grace. And that just doesn't happen, folks. That has to be intentional. Progressive sanctification, this growing and maturing in Christ, is not just about the Holy Spirit working in and through us. It's also about our commitment to grow and to mature uh, in Christ by yielding to the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways that the Lord matures us in this progressive sanctification is through discipline and correction. And the majority of the correction that from the Lord comes to us in the form of trials and testings. And the author of Hebrews assures us that God has not sent, not sent those kinds of trials and testings into our experience in order to frustrate us or in order to humiliate us, but in fact, he sends them into our lives or allows them into our lives so that we will be molded and shaped more and more to the image of his son. In fact, he argues that because we face trials and difficulties in our life and we persevere, it proves that we are his children. But to persevere to the end, we also need something else. We need each other. It's not just about me. It's not just about you. It's about us the collective body of Christ. And so we are to be concerned for others in the church, and we should strengthen those who are spiritually struggling. All the while, we should be watchful of our own walk to ensure that we leave a straight path for others to follow. 
There should be unity in the body of Christ, and we should be pursuing peace with all people, not allowing bitterness into our hearts. And he warned us to make sure that we didn't end up like Esau, a guy who let his flesh dictate his actions, a man who let bitterness ruin him. He did not take the spiritual path. He did not take the godly way. And so he ended up acting immorally and ungodly. And then that brings us then up to our text here in verse 18 in chapter 12. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, as I was recapping this section here from our previous study, and Lord, I was reminded of your admonition to us to love one another, to care for one another, to come alongside one another when our knees are weak and our arms are feeble. If we have any in our midst, Lord, who might be struggling spiritually right now, that we as a body would come together and we would seek those people out, Lord, and come walk along beside them. And I think in light of all that is going on around us here today, that that admonition we should take to heart. That it's not just about us. It's not just about me. It's not just about you personally, beloved. It is about us collectively as the body of Christ. And so I pray, Father, that we as a church, even though our services are canceled, we are still the church. And that we would love one another and have a spirit of unity in the midst of this turbulent time. And so, Lord, be with us. Be with us now, Lord, as we continue our walk in Hebrews. Open up our eyes. Give us a heart, Lord, and ears to hear, heart to apply it, a mind to understand it. And, Lord, may we apply it to our lives in a way that brings you honor and glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 12, let's look at these first two verses, verses 18 and 19. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. So point number one, the mountain at Sinai was filled with fear and judgment. Now let's take a quick look at what these words and images here are all about. The author of Hebrews, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is painting for us a word picture, and he wants to make a very specific point about that. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, that's what we have here. We have a word picture. And what this word picture is used for is to provide a contrast between two mountains. Once again, verses 18, 21, 18 through 21 are describing one mountain. Verses 22 to 24 are describing the other one. And it is the description of the first mountain and what that represents to all professing believers. That's the focus of our study this morning. Now, the first mountain described here, while not named specifically, is without a doubt Mount Sinai. And the word picture immediately brings to a memory uh, brings to memory a time in Israel's history in the Exodus and prior to receiving the Ten Commandments. And so keep your place in Hebrews chapter 12 and turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. And we want to look at verses 1 through 17. 
So Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And when they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the, in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, <coughs> excuse me, saying, Thou, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and, to the sons, and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen, <coughs> excuse me, you yourself have seen what I did in, to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders to the people and sat before them and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord, Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Verse 10. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch even the border of it. For whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there, were, that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. So this was the mountain where Moses had first seen the burning bush, and now he came to this mountain to receive the Sinai covenant by God of the Ten Commandments. Now what is this word picture telling us? This is simply telling us that there is an aspect of God that is to be feared, now, we don't talk about this a lot in churches today because many pastors want to emphasize God's love and mercy and compassion and not his justice and wrath and judgment. But as I've said many times to you, beloved, God's attributes are not a pincushion where we just pull out and discard the attributes we're not comfortable with. To pull any characteristic of God and discard it is to change God into something he is not. God, the one and only true God, does not change. And God's judgment and wrath are just as much a part of who God is 
as is his mercy and love and compassion. So there's an aspect of God that includes judgment and fear and wrath and terror and divine punishment. And that's the picture we see in Exodus 19, verses 1 through 17. This is what Mount Sinai represents. It represents a God as he interacted with his people where? Under the law, under the covenant he had made with his people at Mount Sinai. There was strict adherence to what God commanded or face his wrath, face his judgment, face his divine punishment. Look again here, and you can see it in verse 18 in Hebrews chapter 12, again, that this was a mountain described as a blazing fire. Now, all throughout Scripture, fire is used repeatedly as a symbol of judgment or God's wrath. Matter of fact, Moses later says in Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. That means that's a fire that, that, that touches everything that is exposed to it. Later, actually, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, that same expression is used again. Now, turn back again to Exodus, if you haven't. If, you've, uh, if you are still there, or if you went back to Hebrews with me, and look now at verses 18 and 19. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. So, Note that there is darkness and gloom and whirlwind. The whole mountain trembled violently. And then there was a sound of a trumpet blast going forth, and it gets louder and louder, as indicated in verse 19. Now, trumpets in Scripture are often used for judgment as well. How did the people respond? Well, now flip back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 19, and you can see that they begged that no further word be spoken to them by God. And they were, without a doubt, terrified at the voice of God. And as they looked up on that mountain that day, they saw a mountain full of fire and smoke. And the whole ground was trembling that they were standing on beneath their feet. The whole earth was shaking at the presence of God, and the trumpet blasts were getting louder and louder and louder, and the voice of God in the thunder petrified them, just as God intended. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, to stand at the foot of Mount Sinai is to see a very visible manifestation of God's holiness and his justice and his wrath and his majesty, and his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. And it's even a picture of death. It's interesting to note that when God gave Israel the law, he did not give them the law right after they exited Egypt. He did not give them the law after they reached the promised land. When did he give the Israelites the law? He gave them the law three months later in the middle of the desert. Why? Because in the middle of the desert, there's no place to run. There's no place to hide. There are no distractions to divert your attention. And I believe, I believe God wanted them 
to see this terrifying majesty in full effect, to make them aware of who they were or who they are in the presence of a holy, righteous God. And my friends, you want to know something? They were made very aware of their sinfulness. Because that's what the law does, isn't it? That's what the law is for. Paul describes it as a tutor and a schoolmaster in Galatians 3.24. It shows us that the approachableness of a holy God, because of our vile and repulsive sinfulness, is cut off. And God illustrated that by giving them the law in a location where they couldn't focus on anything but their own sinfulness in contrast to a God of uncompromising holiness. And like it or not, we must face who we truly are and recognize that we are a sinner and have rebelled against a holy and righteous God, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And that's exactly what God did at Mount Sinai. He made every man, woman, and child there painfully aware of their own sinfulness as they witnessed this terrifying demonstration of a holy, righteous God. And that's what the law does. It exposes our sinfulness. It exposes our hypocritical self-righteousness. And it shows us a majestic, transcendent holiness of God. No one can stand under the rigorous rigorous scrutiny of the law and not recognize their own sinfulness. So point number one, the mountain at Sinai was filled with fear and judgment. Mount Sinai is a picture of the law and what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 3, 7, the ministry of death. The law demanded perfection or the consequences were fatal. So there was fear, there was judgment, there was wrath, there was divine punishment for any and all who attempted to approach a God in any form of their own righteousness. And that is what these professing believers needed to remember. Before they returned back to that system of the law under Judaism, and they willingly placed themselves back under that system again. The author of Hebrews wants to say, This is what it was like under the law, this system that you're so eager to run back to. Before you do that, before you abandon your profession of faith in Christ, you need to remember what it was like under the law. Hebrews chapter 12, then verse 20. For they could not bear the command, even if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Point number two in your notes, the mount. The mountain at Sinai demonstrated our need for a mediator. Look at Exodus again, chapter 19. And let's look this time now. We looked at verses 18 and 19. Let's pick it up in verse 20. So the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down. Warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you have warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. 
but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now, again, the theological truth here behind this command is the holiness of God. He is apart from God's apart from God's provision in Jesus Christ. He is unapproachable by sinful men. He is so holy that even animals can't cannot get too close, or they must be put to death. And that doesn't that's not really speaking about sinfulness of animals as much as it is the unapproachableness of God. So at Mount Sinai, initially only Moses and Aaron were allowed to go up into the mountain into God's presence. But the people could not draw near to God through Moses or Aaron. Why not? Because they were sinful men just like the others. But here's what I want you to remember. That Jesus Christ, remember from chapter 7, Jesus Christ is our sinless high priest who offered himself as our sacrifice. Or as Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So the author of Hebrews' point is that while the law reveals God's holiness and convicts us of our deserving judgment, Jesus is God's mediator who paid the penalty for all that believe in him. So the route to the other mountain that we'll talk about next week, Mount Zion. The route there has to first go through Mount Sinai, where we encounter this unmitigated reality of our own lack of righteousness, which is exposed through God's law. But we can't even approach the presence of God without a mediator, beloved. And not just any mediator. We don't get to declare ourselves a mediator. We need a righteous mediator And we have a righteous mediator who's seated at the right hand of the Father. So point number one, the mountain at Sinai was filled with fear and judgment. There was fear and judgment and wrath and divine punishment for any and all who attempted to approach God in any form of their own righteousness. Point number two, the mountain at Sinai demonstrated our need for a mediator. And while the law reveals God's holiness and convicts us of Our deserving judgment, Jesus is God's mediator who paid the penalty for all that believe in him. He's the mediator we need to approach the other mountain, which we'll see next week. Which then brings us to our final point in verse 21 of Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look at that together. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. So point number three, even Moses feared and trembled as he approached the Lord. So following all of this that went on in Exodus 19, a few other things happen. And then Moses delivers the Ten Commandments to the people of God. And as soon as he's finished with that, right on the heels of that last commandment, this is what we see recorded in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in in order to test you in order that the fear of him may remain with you 
so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Notice again, all the people feared and trembled. But there's one man among them who's been around God a lot. And he's faced a lot of tough things. And that was Moses. He'd seen God in the burning bush. He'd seen the fire that was there that didn't consume the bush. He had gone to Pharaoh and stood nose to nose with the most powerful man in the world and told him what he ought to do. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he refused. And so Moses came back again and again and again and kept telling Pharaoh what he needed to do, each time putting his own life in jeopardy. And Moses had seen God move and do things that defy the natural order of the world. God had moved in supernatural ways, and Moses was there for it all. But do you know what Moses did when he stood there? He trembled just like everybody else. All the people feared and trembled. Where was Moses? Right with them. You see, it doesn't matter whom you are when you stand under the law and under the judgment of God. There was no forgiveness being offered at Sinai. They were not told to make an atonement for their sin. They couldn't even approach the mountain or they would die. There was only one appropriate response to the law, and that was obedience or face the consequences. Galatians 3.10. Cursed is everyone that does not abide by what? All things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, my friends, this flies in the face of people who think they can get to heaven because they're a good person, doesn't it? Because Galatians 3.10 reminds us that if you ever broke even one commandment, then you are cursed. Listen, you just like the Israelites standing at the base of the mountain in the terrifying demonstration of this immense power of a holy and righteous God. And just like them, you're not even setting foot up on that mountain. You don't get to approach God in all of his holiness by your own standard of righteousness. You don't get to thump your chest and declare to God how he should accept your good works and let you in because you've declared yourself a good person. If you're going to try to get to heaven based upon your good works, then you're going to need, need to meet God's standard of holiness and righteousness, and that is found in the law. And believe me when I tell you, you do not want to stand before God based upon your perfect adherence to God's law, my friends. Nobody does. At least no one should even be thinking about that. Your response as you stand before Mount Sinai and the law would be the same as the Israelites. Holy terror, trembling, fear. Exodus 20, 18 and 19 tells us the people were so afraid of such a thing, they begged that God's voice would be stilled. And such was the response that not only of the people, but even of Moses himself, in spite of all he, that God had previously revealed to him. The author's point here is that if you're going to try to seek refuge again in the law, you're not going to find the peace and rest you're looking for. Because like Moses, you're going to be overwhelmed with fear. My friends, when you stand before God on Judgment Day, there's only two books. There's the book of life or there's the book of the law. You want your name in the book of life, and you don't earn your way into that book. You are in that book by faith in Jesus Christ. You don't want to stand before a holy and righteous God and try to defend your life against the perfection of God's law. That's your only other choice. And my friends, you won't even get to approach the mountain because of your sinfulness. 
So he says to them, what do you want to do? Those of you who have made professions of faith in Christ, what do you want to do? Do you want to come to God on your own based upon your own works and try to approach God through your supposed perfect adherence to his holy law? Or would you rather come to the other mountain as a humble sinner saying, I cannot approach you, God, on my own works. I can only approach you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ as the atonement for my sin. That it's not what I do, Father, but what Christ has done for me. And I need a mediator. And that mediator is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day. It is through faith in Christ, in Christ alone, that I'm even allowed to come into your presence. I have no redeeming merit on my own other than Jesus Christ. Father, I plead your forgiveness and enter into your presence. And God will accept you, won't he? Based upon the righteousness of Christ, not your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. So point number one, the mountain at Sinai was filled with fear and judgment. And that fear and judgment and wrath and divine punishment was for all who had tried or attempted to approach God in any way other than what he has prescribed in their own righteousness. Point number two, the mountain at Sinai demonstrated our need for a savior, not just any mediator. I'm sorry, point number two, the mountain of Sinai demonstrated our need for a mediator and why the law reveals God's holiness and convicts us of his deserving judgment. Jesus is the mediator who paid the penalty for all to believe in him. And then finally, point number three, even Moses feared and trembled as he approached the Lord. It doesn't matter who you are when you stand before a holy and righteous God. You do not want to be judged based upon the law. You want Christ's imputed righteousness credited to your account. There wasn't any forgiveness being offered at Sinai. And so the author of Hebrews here is giving a contrast. And then he quickly says, what are you going to do about it? Remember this. He says, let me tell you that you have not come to Mount Sinai when you made your profession of faith. You've come to Mount Zion, the other mountain. And it's a mountain of grace. You're going to hear all about that next week. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this time in your word. And I thank you, Father, that we can approach you any time, day or night, because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And that all those who have made a confession of faith, Lord, who have trusted in you as their Lord and Savior, that unapproachableness is gone. And at any time, day or night, any day of the week, Lord, we can come to you through prayer into your very throne room of grace. Where we receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Father, thank you. Just like we talked about, Lord, in the beginning, sometimes we don't even realize what we have until we're faced with the reality of what it would be like without it. And so, Father, I pray that all those who have made confessions of faith will stand strong, remain strong in their faith, not try to return to a system of works, but continue to trust in you. Be with us now, Lord. Be with all who are listening here today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.